This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Dollars and Change on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 111. Good morning. Welcome to Dollars and Change. I'm Catherine Klein, Vice Dean for Social Impact at Wharton. And I'm Sandy Hunt, Senior Director here at the Wharton Social Impact Initiative. Sandy, good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning. We have not done the show together for a long time. We had, maybe, yeah, like six months. Or I don't it's know. Been quite a while. It is quite a while. You know, we have a we have a great team who can rotate through in in our co hosting. We kind of have to, you know, say, no, 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 it's my turn to be on the air. Uh, so it's my get, turn to be on the air. We get greedy when there are very good guests like today. I know it's exciting. It's exciting, and uh, I will say the uh, you know campus is different. We will highlight for a moment that you know this is June, mm-hmm. and there there it's it's a little calmer on campus. There's always a ton going on at Wharton. Oh yeah. But, you know, there are fewer students around. Mm-hmm. So I love it. I think the seasonality of our work is a delight. Yeah. The fact that you've got these, you know, really energized back to school seasons and then you can kind of put your head down in summer on your own work. Right. It's right. I know. And not to get too far into the seasonality, but I always think, you know, when New Year's Eve ro- rolls mm-hmm. around, it's like, yeah, whatever. You know? September 1st. <laughs> right. September 1st is the start of the yes. new year, right? We, we, yep. They're different. Yep. They're different, right? Gretchen Rubin, a, a writer and... Um, an author and, and uh, podcaster that I, I love calls it the other New Year's. Right. Yeah. And no, I think that's, no. very, I mean, it's, it and sort for of those has of, that freshness. Yeah. And for those of us, I mean, I think for listeners can remember that they are, school days always felt, you know, may have had that rhythm, mm-hmm. right, in the United States. Um, always interesting when I'm in other countries and the calendar is entirely different. The academic calendar is entirely like, oh, what, yeah. wait a minute, wait. Like school is in Rwanda, like when is in, back to school? The calendar year for most schools in Rwanda ends in uh, October or November, huh. the end of the end. So kids will graduate in October or November, you know, which in some ways makes total sense, right? <laughs> you know, we'll do it on the calendar <laughs> yeah, year. Yeah. Um, so in any case, huh. we have a great lineup of guests. I think there's some really interesting themes that cut through. There's a lot around, you know, it seems to me there's a lot around data. And at least for our first three guests, I think we'll be picking up on themes around Data and transformation in the nonprofit sector. Mm-hmm. So, how are you using how are you using data? How are you using new technologies uh, to you know really create impact in in different ways? And all the, of these are sectors that there was an old way of doing things, right? right? There, there's decades and decades of history that yeah. are now being evolved with the use of data. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, I'll, I'll give a little a shout out to one of my students actually who uh, wrote a paper uh, on the organization that we're going to highlight first. Uh, crisis text line, and I was so impressed with this paper, but more, you know, good, excellent paper by my student, <laughs> and, uh, you know, a fascinating organization, so I'm really excited that we'll be speaking in the first segment with Bob Philbin, Chief Data Scientist, Crisis Text Line. So, you know, again, some listeners may remember suicide hotlines and so on when you called in. This organization is using texts in a very in- interesting way and reaching just millions of people incredibly fast. So really interesting and very much about the power of data. Texts are, you know, the, all that data is there to be analyzed. Mm-hmm. So it should be a really interesting conversation. Uh, then we'll talk with Steve Taylor, SVP and Counsel for Public Policy for the United Way. Uh, you know, one of the the oldest nonprofits, largest nonprofits, privately funded nonprofit in the world. 
Um, so the United Way has been around for over 100 years. 125? 125 years, I think that's right. And, uh, you know, so how do they innovate? How do they innovate? What does all this data and technology mean for them? What's changing in the nonprofit sector? Uh, and, you know, an opportunity to talk with Steve, too, about public policy, what's going on with the Trump administration mm-hmm. uh, versus an Obama administration. What's How does that affect the United Way? So it should be interesting. And then at the top of the hour, we'll talk with Jim Fruchterman, founder and CEO of Benetech. Benetech is a nonprofit bringing technology you know, uh, solutions to the nonprofit sector based out in Silicon Valley. And, you know, in Silicon Valley, we hear sometimes like hmm, they don't really have a, a strong social impact, a strong social commitment. That could be some of the charge against Silicon Valley. Um, so it'll be interesting to talk with, with him about what they're doing. And then finally, in the last segment, we'll be talking with Bill McDonough, a sustainable architect, designer, and author who's just really, I think, thinking in a, in a very revolutionary way about building uh, you know, and environmental impact and carbon and all the rest. I think just a really innovative big thinker. He's uh, somebody who's won the MacArthur Prize and uh, you know, the Genius Award. So it should be a great conversation. So let's get started. Uh, we're gonna, as I said, we're talking in the first segment with Bob Philbin, Chief Data Scientist, the Crisis Text Line, Leveraging Tech for Good. Bob, welcome to the program. Very happy to be here. Great to great to have you with us. So I gave a little introduction to the crisis text line, um, but you know, as sort of the new version of what you know, for, for those of us who've been around for a while, may have known as a you know, have thought of as a crisis hotline, which would have been a you know, call call in on my telephone when I'm in crisis. Uh, and and talk to somebody who might you know who I actually I suppose I hope will help me get over this crisis and not commit suicide for example, um, but you all have have created this around a text and found that to be um, I think really innovative and valuable. So tell our listeners what the crisis text line is and um, and maybe what the big takeaways are about using text versus telephone. Yeah, so we are the largest organization in the U.S. providing crisis service by text. We launched in August 2013. We're young, so just under four years. In that time, we've exchanged over 38 million messages with people in crisis. And these crises are a wide range. It's suicidal ideation is one of the most common um, that that comes to mind for people. That's about 25% of our conversations contain suicidal ideation, uh, but it also ranges to depression, thoughts of self-harm, LGBTQ, so coming out as gay, um, uh, abuse. There's a, there's a very broad spectrum. And I would say one thing that we really thought about when, when you were mentioning transformation is from the very beginning, we thought that we want to build this organization from the ground up around technology and data. And one of the ways in that that manifested was the move to text. So we believe that we should be on the mediums where where people are. And young people especially are moving to text. And then beyond that to messaging apps, there should be services available in the places where people are communicating. So they don't have to go to a different app or go back on the phone. We should be meeting them where they are and where they're comfortable. And we've seen that really resonate. Uh, for example, we launched in two cities. Within four months, we were in every area code in the U.S. with, with 
effectively no marketing. It was just spreading organically from people who use the service. And Bob, was there a particular pain point that caused you to sort of, you know, pilot or, or bring this new technology to the, you know, to the space? Was something not working? Was, you know, what gave you this idea and this impetus? Well, you have this amazing story that the founder tells. So I'll cue up that story and then let you take the Sandy's question wherever you want. I'm... Yeah, so the, the founder is Nancy Loveland. Uh, she's also the CEO, and she previously founded an organization, Trust for Success, um, and then was the CEO of DoSomething.org, two other um, nonprofit social change-focused organizations. Um, and so Nancy had the idea when she was CEO of DoSomething.org, uh, there was a conversation with um, uh, a volunteer at that service, and that is Andit, young people volunteering on social change projects around the country, but it's things like uh, donating clothing or um, doing a, a peanut butter and jelly drive for um, bringing food to, to homeless shelters, different things like that. But somebody um, texted in for a volunteer campaign, but uh, brought up a series of messages that, that Nancy couldn't ignore um, and was actually brought to her by one of her employees, which was a texter came in and sent the messages. Um, and this is intense, but it was, he won't stop raping me. It's my dad. Are you there? Yeah. Unbelievable. And seeing those messages, Nancy tried to find existing resources. Um, and there's, there's a great one out there. There's rain, which is the rape abuse incest national network. Um, and she referred this this texter to or this texter to Rain, but Rain was at the time only available by phone. Mm. Um, she never heard back from this texter, so we didn't know if uh, she didn't know if if you know what happened in that case. And she realized that there was nothing available on the medium in which this texter was trying to use, and that that was a huge gap. Yeah, it's it's such a powerful it's such a powerful story, and I think it, you know, I think part of it speaks to the the power of texting, right? That you have, um, you know, that it's that it does have more anonymity for people. Well, and even I'm thinking logistically, there was a commercial that aired during the Super Bowl last year. I think we talked about it on this show for, um, I think you know, obviously it was against domestic violence, and it was an individual who called nine one one pretending they were calling in for a pizza order, right? And sort of was able to say, like, yes, can you come right away? And, you know, the, the 911 person was, you know, in, you know, in, intelligent enough to ask the right questions to identify that this was that person's way of calling for help. But so you think about situations where safety is coming into play in that fashion. People are on their phones all the time. Right. It might be a lot easier to say, oh, I'm flipping through Instagram. And really, you're reaching out for help then to have to actually pick up the phone and vocalize it. There's a safety aspect that I imagine might also um, be really beneficial. So so you're, yeah. you're kind of giving the, the sort of uh, launch story or the inspiration mm -hmm. story. Um, it sounds like this you know really took off like wildfire once it launched, which surprises me, I, I suppose, a little bit because I wonder, you, you talked about this being organic growth. So that means people are talking about it, that they texted into this, which strikes me as sort of um, 
unexpected in this space. So to what do you attribute the growth? Are you seeing new channels for communication by um, users? Are there anonymous channels that are starting to also um, be an asset due to the, you know, technology afforded to all of us, many of us? So one of the really surprising things is how much the the volume can um, shift very quickly. So I'll even say that last night, um, we saw a over 50% increase in our normal volume. And uh, we've seen this for about the last three days right now. And that's because there was a post that one of our, our texters shared on Facebook. Um, so social media is a core way in which wow. news about crisis text line travels. And that, that was shared. It was reposted. And so we see these sort of sharp increases or what we call spikes mm-hmm. and then a new normal afterwards. So we see that 50% increase, it might tail off a bit, um, but we're still, you know, now at 20% higher than we were before this spike occurred. And we see these spikes, I would say, every three months or so of, of a large size. And that, that's driving, you know, through this organic sharing and then access through posts on Facebook, Tumblr, Reddit, um, across, really, across social media we see our continued growth. Um, and we're now at a pace, it, you know, it's crazy to think about. For I was here since the very beginning, but we're now over 2 million messages a month up from you know, zero conversations uh, when we started four years ago. So it's, it's pretty amazing speed of growth. So a, a quick follow-up on that, Bob. When, we, when you mentioned 2 million messages on crisis text line, are these literally me- should that we, Should we think of that as messages or should we think of that as conversations? Um, it is messages, mm-hmm. and the, the average conversation can be pretty rich. It can be anywhere from 20 to 40 messages depending on the, the needs of the texter. Um, but we think about, you know, really when I'm thinking about data and the richness of the data and the conversation, I think about the messages um, because that is the story of the crisis that the person is in. Right. Um, one thing that's really unique about our data, I would say, is that uh, we not only see that the person's, for example, feeling suicidal, but we see the words that they use mm-hmm. and the events that led to that feeling of suicidality and what happened afterwards when our counselor talks to them, what helps them to feel better. Um, and so what's really unique about our data is we often have the power to see insights that will help us either reduce the number of, of crises occurring or actually um, after the fact uh, reduce the the kind of heat of the moment. Uh, so move that texture from a hot moment to a cool moment. So, there are insights in there that we can use to um, improve how people experience crisis and reduce crisis. So, so Bob, I want to give our listeners a little bit of context for what, what we're talking about and then dig into your role as data scientist and the kind of things that, mm-hmm. that you're learning uh, at, at Crisis Text Line. So, you know, what I, what I understand, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, right, you have this Crisis Text Line. You have uh, I think thousands of of, uh, of volunteers who man the text lines. Well, I was going to ask: Are they? They are volunteers. They're volunteers. They get extensive training yeah. from from you all about uh, uh, how to respond to people, and uh, and you're able to use this rich, uh, you know, incredibly uh, extensive uh, data set of all the prior text to to inform their training. Before we get into the to the the data. Um, can you give us a little sense of what, you know, if you had to think of, this is a pretty typical exchange that we have. 
you know, and um, uh, or, or you know, one of the typical exchanges that I, I you have. I know that you know actually around well. What should we expect on Mondays versus on Fridays? What should we expect at 5 a.m. versus uh, at midnight? So give us just a little sense of a typical conversation, and then we'll, let's dig into mm-hmm. what you can learn through the data. Yeah. So we see about two-thirds of our volume between 8 p.m. and 4 a.m., um, and about 75% of our texters are under the age of 25, 10% are under the age of 13, just to give you a lay of the land on, on who's texting in. Um, in a, a particular uh, thinking of an average conversation, the texter will, we ask them always when they first text in, what what's on your mind? And what's amazing is how quickly texters will reveal the core of their crisis. And I think this is really different on text um, than on phone. So texters will off the bat say, I'm feeling suicidal, or I'm thinking of killing myself, or you know, whatever it might be. Like, I, I had a uh, breakup with someone and don't see a reason to live or don't see a reason to go to school today, et cetera. So the speed to which you can get to the core of the crisis and the counselor then can start working with the texter um, exploring around that is, is really incredible. The arc from there is um, the counselor first um, establishes some degree of rapport, goes into problem solving, and then, or excuse me, goes into problem exploration, and then goes into collaborative problem solving. Those are the terms we use, but I'll say like what's really amazing to me and was a surprise to me, and I would say the, the whole organization, is what we're really talking about here is active listening. A lot of these people who text in really just want to know that someone is there to listen to them, who can listen and not judge. And a lot of the training that we found most valuable for our crisis counselors is actually independent of the crisis. So it turns out it doesn't matter as much if you know specifically about LGBTQ issues versus um, abuse issues versus suicidal issues. It matters that you're a good, active listener. And that's that's kind of a cool insight and one that I, I bring to my own life in terms of how I'm relating to friends and families, um, you know, taking elements of training and making sure that I'm doing a really good job active listening. That's great. So uh, we're talking with Bob Philbin, Chief Data Scientist for the Crisis Text Line. You can join the conversation at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. So we've been we've been talking, Bob, about uh, all the the data that you're using. So you know you've got all this data. You're the Chief Data Scientist. A fascinating role for the Crisis Text Line. Um, how are you actually using the the data? This this goldmine of millions, uh, if not billions, of messages. Yeah, and, and I'll say I'm very, I feel very lucky to be a chief data scientist at a nonprofit. It's a very rare role, and, um, and that's uh, partially because, uh, you know, primarily because Nancy, our, our founder, believes in data science as a central tenet of how we run. And when, when you were mentioning transformation, I, one of the things that I hope for and one of the reasons why I'm in this space is to see more data science across the nonprofit space and the ability to to impact the bottom line of what we're trying to do, which is social change. Um, so, yeah, I really have to be here. And the one way in which we're using the data, we do use data internally, as we're talking about, to inform training. And I'll just mention a quick example there that I think is relevant in any context, 
not only crisis, which is um, we use something called strength IDs. Uh, our counselors say that was really brave of you to talk to a friend or um, that was really strong of you to do um, to like, go for a walk and try to cool down from your, mo- from your moment of, of crisis. So the words brave, smart, and proud turn to be the three best strength IDs um, that you can use in any context. So you tell somebody that they were brave for doing something, that they were smart, or that you're proud of them. Um, it's not only good for moments of crisis, it's also good as a parent. It's also good in a friend-to-friend relationship. Those are the types of insights that we can find in our data um, because we can look through 38 million messages that our counselors have sent and find patterns that naturally ri- arise because of the scale of our data. So it's correlation, but it's it's um, an overwhelmingly strong signal because of the size of our, our corpus. And um, those are the insights that we build back into training. So that's that's one example of how we're using data. It's such powerful stuff. Bob, I'm wondering for the actors in the in your ecosystem and you know, there's there's sort of no end to them, right? These are schools, families, you referenced parents. You're learning things that are incredibly powerful. And people are coming to you sort of at those those hot points, those points of crisis. How are you or what are you doing to share that knowledge and those lessons learned with these other stakeholder groups to hopefully create, you know, additional support or more preventative support so that they know, you know, I'm imagining you're seeing the arc of these of engagement with these clients. How do you, you know, how do you identify earlier? How how are you supportive? So to put up, you know, a specific point on the question you learn that brave, smart, and proud are the three words to use. You know, are you sharing that with these other groups and how? Yeah, we are sharing those insights. Um, I'll say one way we're doing that, there's a website that, that's publicly available, crisistrends.org. You can go there now. You can see our latest data on how issues of crisis um, vary by state, by time of day, day of week, and, um, and uh, some of the words that are associated with these different crisis issues. One that stands out to me as a, as a New Englander originally is if you look at the issue of anxiety across the U.S., uh, New England's high up there. I think we have uh, six. We're, we're in the top five. I think all the top five states are in New England for high levels of anxiety relative to other states. Um, so that's just one example. Another I wonder why. Is there a hypothesis there? Yeah. Oh, well, so I mentioned there that... Um, you know, I'm not an expert in crisis issues in particular, and um, I would say that's true for a lot of our staff. We're from technology, um, but we also have a program side that, that works on crisis. The, the, the truth is we have a scale of data that goes beyond our expertise in a lot of ways, and so what we do is we partner with academic researchers. So we now have over 20 active partnerships with academic teams that specialize in issues like um, anxiety, uh, issues for veterans. Um, we have a project on, we have one team that's looking at um, indicators of abuse. When a taxpayer doesn't use the word abuse, but they, um, it's clear that they are experiencing it, can we find patterns that we can then pass off to other organizations and say, here's what to look for, or families to say, here's what to look for. So one of our greatest, uh, one of the programs I'm most excited about is this, what we call um, Enclave Data Sharing Program, where we share program uh, data with these academic researchers who are experts in particular fields of crisis 
that um, not only goes beyond our uh, expertise, but also can be shared across crisis organizations. So, and 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 Bob, with um, you know, in your role as uh, as chief data scientist with this crisis text line, you've uh, helped find ways to improve your own services. So, talk with us about how all the you know the data and your analyses have um, have improved your services. I'm thinking particularly of what I've read about how you prioritize calls, you know, how you mm-hmm. triage calls, and what you do about people who are, you know, who are using the crisis text line, perhaps not as a crisis text line, but like, well, this as my daily therapy. Um, yeah. So the, um, we have a, well, I'll speak to you even last night. So we saw this 50% increase in volume. One of our greatest challenges is a consistent balance between capacity and demand. And uh, there, there are other technology companies out there that face the same issue, um, you know, Uber and Lyft um, definitely do, or eBay, um, making sure that you have enough buyers and sellers and, and those are balanced. Same thing happens for us in terms of the number of texters we have coming in and the number of counselors we have to respond. So when we see a sudden influx of a 50% increase in one day, um, that can leave us a little shorthanded on the capacity side. And we have ways of mitigating that and bringing on counselors and volunteers who are willing to join us for these spikes. But one of the automated solutions that we've implemented is what we call texture triage. And the way that we think of this is like a hospital. So a hospital, um, when you go into the the emergency center, you have uh, the people with a gunshot wound, for example, are helped before the person who broke their leg. And the way traditional phone centers work or, or other crisis centers is you just respond to people in the order they come in. But that can mean that somebody who's suicidal is waiting a long time where a person who's just gone through a breakup is getting served first, and that doesn't make sense. So we said, let's try to identify who's at risk for um, uh, self-harm or suicidality in their first few messages and then push them to the top of the queue. So we developed a model based on our data, and we have data on what we call imminent risk conversations, where it was clear by the end of the conversation that the texter was was suicidal. Our our counselor confirms this by looking for four signs. There's the ideation, so are they thinking about suicide? There's the plan, do they know how they would do it? Um, So for example, they would do it with pills. They have the means, so they actually have the pills. And then they have the time frame. So they would mm. do this in the next 24 hours. So that's the criteria that the crisis counselor evaluates for. The amazing thing is we can then take the markers that the counselor labels the conversation with. So they label what was that highest level of risk, but did they have the time frame? And then we can say, okay, for the conversations where those criteria were met, what was the texter saying in their first few messages? And then we train a model against that. And we're now, um, within the first three messages, able to identify over 60% of those imminent risk conversations just based on the first few messages. And uh, the words that are in there are very surprising. I'll just say uh, one that that comes to mind is ibuprofen, something that's in everybody's home. Um, That word is 16, if you see that word in a conversation, that conversation is 16 times more likely to end up as imminent risk than a conversation where the texter uses the word suicide in the first three messages. Yeah. Whoa. And I'm just, you know, I'm asking 
maybe our listeners have the same question. What, like, why is that? Is it because that's the drug of choice that's going to attempt to be overdosed on? Is that a gateway medicine? I mean, what's the? Yeah, so it's 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 so commonly available. It's in every home. Um, I can't say exactly why, uh, because I, I would have to do that research. And and I mean, part of the power of this model is that if you find these patterns, sort of independently of of yeah. knowing the exact reason why, which is interesting. And then, and then we go back sure, and try sure. to figure out, okay, what's driving this? But it, I, I think it's the universal accessibility huh. of it is, is one of the factors, certainly. Um, another one that really struck me is there's a crying emoticon. So this isn't even emoji, which is the kind of rich, the rich media where you see the yellow face and everything. But this is just via text, via SMS, a, a crying face. And um, that, when you see that in a conversation in the first few messages, is 11 times more likely to end up as an imminent risk conversation than seeing the word suicide. So something that I didn't think was that important or it wasn't intuitive to me turns out to be an incredibly good indicator um, of suicide risk, which just means that the way in which people communicate is shifting over time, I would say. That's, that's what struck me. And so we're finding patterns um, that aren't intuitive. So, um, one more I'll put out there on that point is the, the initials KMS, which nobody knew what that meant. Our system flagged it automatically as high risk. Turns out that that stands for kill myself. Oh my God. Um, and so there are patterns that we now have a corpus of about 10,000 words that this model is flagged as high risk. Um, and they're not, not only are useful to us, but other organizations um, that we couldn't identify as humans on our own, uh, but these models can help us identify. And now I'll, I'll just say, like, in our, our spike last night, our average response time is a few minutes, uh, but for high-risk texters, it's 39 seconds. So this translates to real um, time reduced in terms of waiting and then live saved. So it's um, um, a really meaningful way to apply data science. So we've been talking with Bob Philbin, Chief Data Scientist at Crisis Text Line. I could tell you we could keep talking oh, and yeah. talking. Uh, I was just trying to wait. Like, Catherine, I have a good next question. All right. We, last question goes to, to Sandy Hunt because we got to take oh. a break. But uh, I'll let you know. Pressure's I'll, on now. Yeah, the pressure is on, Sandy. And, and wow, Bob, fascinating work. Yeah. I mean, yeah, an understatement. I, um, yeah, very, very fascinating. We are, you know, speaking to you from a college campus where this, you know, issue of mental health is certainly top of mind, sometimes more often than others, tragically. And I'm wondering, you know, I'm I'm imagining a situation like this where we have students who are reaching out to the services available here, supply and demand is it being what it is with counselors and, and whatnot. Your technology can serve sort of as a as a first step, right? Like a thirty nine or thirty nine second response is amazing. And then to be able to say, you know, great, now we're going to connect you with the next available on-campus counselor sort of situation. Are you doing any of that collaboration where your solution is part of a whole suite of offerings, kind of partnering with some traditional brick and mortar or existing services? Um, uh, Yes, we are. And uh, so one example, we're partnering with the state of Ohio. Uh, We're also partnering with the National Eating Disorder Association. Mm -hmm. Overall, we have um, over 60 partnerships. We're working with Facebook Kicks. So we're actually integrated into Facebook Messenger is another big one. Ooh, that's, um, that sounds important for that for that generation. Yeah, and so we are, right, we have the capacity, and so we're, we're stepping into the gap where 
Um, local resources, maybe there aren't enough or it's not 24-7 is often an issue with, with crisis services mm-hmm. at the local level. Um, and also it's really good, too, for the, the texters uh, because there's one number to remember, no matter your issue, no matter where you are. So give out, um, let's, let's make having, sure you give out yeah. that number. So listeners who may be thinking, okay. I'm out to make sure that I want to call the crisis text line. I need to. What do they call? What do they text? I'm sorry. 741-741. So, and then you just text the word um, talk to 741-741. Fabulous. Great. So, Bob, thank you so much for being with us. Bob Philbin, Chief Data Scientist at the Crisis Text Line. As I said, we could continue the conversation for for the entire time, but it's been great speaking with you. I will give a plug for uh, your uh, CEO and founder, Nancy Lublin's uh, TED Talk, which can also give folks a sense of what the Crisis Text Line is all about. Thanks. Thanks so much for being with us. We need to take a break. And uh, when we'll, we come back, we'll be speaking with Steve Taylor, SVP and Counsel for, the pub, for Public Policy for the United Way. So stick with us. This is Dollars and Change. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.